1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Testing Thursdays with Wayne Ivosich. So uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, testing kind of in a generic fashion, but testing in and of itself and, and everything else that's related to it actually starts with the equipment you're going to use. There is a whole plethora, and I love to use the word plethora, of kinds of equipment out there that are available for um, service people to use. Some are absolutely wonderful. Some are absolutely terrible. And we're going to be going over all of the ones that are out there and available, both the good and the bad and the ugly, and tell you which one is probably the best overall for you to use when you're testing water. So let's start off by talking about it in in the grand scheme of things. So if if you envision uh, the the, the food chart, you know, what's at the top and that little pyramid, the food pyramid thing, you can relate that also to testing. So at the top of that food chain or the top of the testing chain, we've got anything electronic, anything digital. These are the two types of tests that are that have the highest degree of accuracy. Uh, you can't beat this. It kind of takes all the human frailties that we have when we're testing and uh, tosses them in the trash can. Because you're, you're not dealing with, you know, how to hold this, how to place this, how far to go, you know, that, that kind of stuff. It, it, it is precise. The digital and electronic pieces come in a variety of formats. I've seen, uh, the old Myron L square black box tests meters, uh, analog meters for testing TDS and conductivity and salt. They've been around forever and are practically indestructible, quite honestly. I remember at a trade show that I went to many years ago, I literally to prove to somebody who came by the booth how indestructible they were. I picked up the thing and then just kind of threw it against a nearby wall and it still worked. You got to really work hard to kill it. But that's an analog meter. So it has a little dial in the front with a little uh, arrow that goes back and forth and stops at whatever it is you're trying to read. Digital is a little bit different because it's more it's more accurate it, it, down to three decimal places in some cases, yes, I know that's a little bit of overkill, but you know when you're talking accuracy, sometimes three decimal places needs to be there so digital so we're talking about things like probes and probes too in the analog meter, but probes mostly in the digital pieces and digital. Testing equipment comes in a variety of different styles, um, uh, simple probes that you stick into a sample of water, and the probe at the end reads whatever it is you're reading and translates that into a value for you to use. Now, some um, digital meters are multi-purpose. Some will do things like Cognitivity, Salinity, uh, TDS, all on the same probe pH is the oddball. Uh, pH testing using a digital meter has to be done with a completely different kind of probe because you need to keep a pH probe immersed in a buffer solution all the time. Usually it's a buffer solution of, say, a pH of four. Sometimes it's a seven. really depends upon what the manufacturer of the actual uh, probe the the digital meter says to use, whichever one is best. But the key is... You got to keep that probe wet for pH because if you don't, the pH probe will crack, will dry out and crack, and and will will no longer give accurate readings, if any readings at all. Quite honestly, but it's it's critical that. Which kind of plays into one of the most common questions I get, or used to get at trade shows, was. Is there just one probe I can use to stick in the pool water and give me all the values once I stick it in there? No, that's called the magic wand, a little thing I phrased many, many years ago. And the magic wand doesn't exist, only in our minds, because of the way that that pH needs to be, that the probe itself needs to be maintained and used. It's a separate kind of animal, so there is no one magic, one wand Thing that you can stick into pool or spa water and it will give you all the readings. Um, We're not quite there yet. That doesn't mean it might not happen, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, but right now, nope. And it hasn't been around for a long, long time. So, all of the other values, I mean, you can get portable colorimeters and photometers. These again use a probe of, of a certain type to read whatever value it is that you need to find. The difference is that, say, in a colorimeter, a portable colorimeter, you're using a specific wavelength of light to travel through a treated sample. And then the outgoing light from the sample is then converted into whatever value it is you're reading. Now, the photometers essentially work in the same fashion. The problem is with this level of accuracy and sophistication, when you're talking digital and electronic pieces, uh, unfortunately is not cheap. Inexpensive, you know, $10 and $20 little probes that you can see in a lot of uh, retail stores and some distributors are just that cheap. Uh, They may work one or two times, but after that, forget it, all bets are off. Because the two most important, Important things when you're talking with electronic pieces, the top of that testing food chain, is that you have to be able to clean the probe regularly and you have to be able to calibrate the unit itself. Clean and calibrate, CC c squared uh, you got to be able to do that. If you can't do both, forget it. Don't waste your money on it. Uh, it's not worth it. Or if you do waste your money on it, it's not going to work after a few tries. Uh, you have to be able to clean the probe. Let's start with that one. Cleaning the probe is essential because a probe tips can foul. That's F-O-U-L, not foul like in chicken, uh, but it can be fouled. And what I mean by probe fouling is that there could be a little bit of debris uh, in the water that is soluble. You can't see it. It's mixed with the water, but yet will deposit on that probe. And over time, if you just... Go ahead and, and, and rinse it off with distilled water, then you're good to go. Uh, that's all it takes to do to clean it. Uh, pH probes, again, immerse it in that pH buffer to keep it dry, uh, to keep it wet. Excuse me. Don't let it dry out. So you've got to be able to clean it. Now, how often do you clean a probe? It's really going to kind of depend on how often you use it. Uh, I've always recommended that if you're going to use the, those kind of, uh, th- those pieces of equipment, I would calibrate it honestly weekly, clean it weekly. Uh, calibration I'll get to in a second, but you know, in 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 a, in a best case scenario, if you can simply rinse them off with distilled water, DI water that you can get in any grocery store, in between tests, that would be the perfect scenario. That would that would make me happy, and would make your meter happy, and would make you happy, and your customers happy. Now the second part of that C, the calibration, that's critical. Because after a certain amount of usage, these units will drift as far as giving you an answer. It may not be uh, as exact and precise as you want it to be. Uh, It's just simply not there. So what you need to do is use uh, a standard solution or some kind of calibration kit that, that may be available for that particular piece of equipment to, to the, calibrate the units themselves. How often, again, do you do this? Again, gonna depend on how often you use the unit. If it's a fairly daily thing, you know, calibration once a week might not be a bad idea. If you use it infrequently or only use it for, say, problem water, things like that, then, you know, maybe once a month is is more along where you need to be. But the critical thing is, clean and calibrate. You gotta be able to do both with those electronic pieces. So let's move down the the, the testing food chain pyramid. And the next most accurate uh, testing method is a drop test, uh, otherwise known as a titration. This is where you take a sample of water and you're adding something to the water, whether it's a liquid or a powder, and it's causing it to change color. And then you're adding another reagent uh, drop by drop, or in a full-blown glass burette, the long, thin glass tubes, when you're adding that, um, uh, titrant, those that's what that's called, to cause that initial color to change to another color. The change to another color is called the endpoint. That means you stop. You've reached the end of the titration of the drop test. You don't need to add any more. It's not going to do anything. You know, more is not better. That's an, another key phrase when we're talking testing. So you're going from one color to another. Let's give, let's give a really good example. Let's talk about uh, a total alkalinity drop test, for example, a titration. Most of the time when you're talking about an alkalinity test, um, you're starting off with uh, a sample of water, and then you're adding a reagent to it to neutralize out any sanitizer that might be in the sample. And then you're adding another reagent to cause it to change color. Usually it's to a pretty green, like a nice green grass green kind of color. And then you're adding another reagent drop by drop, mixing in between each drop until it goes to, I've always called it a candy apple red color, but an intense red color. And then you take the number of draw, and then you stop adding that titrant when the color no longer changes red, uh, varying shades of red. It, it has to stay red. Uh, stay that shade, and adding more drops doesn't change it. Then you count the number of drops it took to do that, from the green to the red, times what we call uh, an equivalence. A lot of times it's 10 parts per million, sometimes it's 20, sometimes 25. It really kind of depends on what test you're doing. But that's a really good example of a drop test there. Calcium hardness is a, is a good drop test, um, things of that nature. Um, anything that where you start from one color and you have to get to another color even if that color is colorless as in drop tests for sanitizers which we will be talking about later on that's still colorless is kind of a color endpoint so you know from from color a to color slash colorless b that's that's a drop test that's a titration that has an accuracy rate of about uh, one drop in 10 or 10% generally speaking there might be some variations on a theme between uh testing system manufacturers but normally it's about a 10 percent accuracy rate which means excuse me that for every 10 drops you add to try to get that color change you could actually be off one drop so if it took 20 drops That's two sets of 10, so you could actually be off two drops in either direction, and two times whatever the drop equivalence is, that's your accuracy. Now, if you work in a retail store or you work in a lab where you're using full-blown glass burettes, then that's a little bit different. Glass burettes have a better degree of accuracy. Generally speaking, uh, their accuracy rate is 2%. That's pretty darn good. That's more than darn good. It's, it's, it's way good. <laughs> um, but in any case, it's still a titration. Titrations and drop tests are the same thing. The next step down on our food chain chain of testing, you notice the base is getting a little wider because it's a pyramid, is anything that's that's color matching. So you take a sample of water, you add a specific reagent, and it develops a color. Then you match that color using your eyes to a color chart, liquid color standards, a plastic chips that have been melted into a solid color block. Anytime you're using your eyes to match a developed color to another color that's already there. In other words, you didn't create that second color. It was already available for you. That's called color matching. Probably the most common form of testing that we see in the industry today. Also, it it, it has its own advantages and disadvantages. One is the ease the advantage, rather—is the ease of how of how the test exactly works. I mean, it's pretty pretty simple. If you can match colors, you can you're good to go. Yes, I know some people are colorblind. I get it, uh, but those of us who aren't. This is a very simple way to to test for for values in your pool or spa water sample. Now, with color matching using your eyes, you've got some issues to deal with. One of them is your eyes. Uh, Everybody interprets color a little differently than the next person. Uh, What I think may be pink may be red to somebody else. What I think may be blue may be green to somebody else. It, It happens, okay? Just be aware that if you're doing color matching, you're trying to get the closest color match to whatever standard you're matching that color against. That's, that's part one. Part two of color matching is, is how you actually hold the, the, the color against the printed color standards or however they're, they're presented. Uh, in other words, uh, you don't want to, f- if you're outside, OK? You don't want to face the sun by holding up that little little sample of water because it's not going to change the color that's developed that you're trying to match something else to, but it's going to alter how your eyes interpret that color. That's why it's always best to face away from the sun so that the sun is hitting you on your back or on your shoulders. You don't want to be facing the sun. So ideally, if you're outside, and and you know north, south, east, and west, you're pretty good. You know, your Boy Scout or Girl Scout instincts came in face north, okay? That way the sun's not going to hit you in your eyes. A lot of people also have problems with beautiful, bright, blue, cloudless sky. Uh, sometimes the blue, the intense blue, the pretty sky blue, will actually interfere, again, with how your eye eyes interpret that color, okay? So, so what do you do? Well, what I've always recommended is get a white piece of paper or a good friend with a white t shirt and have them stand about all six, six to 12 inches behind the comparator system that you're using to help diffuse some of that blue. Okay. So it's, it's, it, there's, there's ways to, to work around, you know, weird outside situations. But hey, Mr. Wayne. I work in, at an indoor facility and I have to test at night. There is no sun. Well, guess what, guys? You've got some issues to deal with. Uh, because the kind of light that's mostly used inside these facilities is either fluorescent or some form of incandescent lighting, which really messes up how your eyes interpret color. Even LED lighting uh, can do a number uh, to how your eyes match those colors. So are you screwed? No, not really. Uh, you have a way to get around it. Uh, and the best way, to, you, you've got two options. The best option is to locate and purchase, if your budget allows it, some kind of daylight simulating lamp. These are available in scientific lab equipment catalogs. Worst case scenario, I've even seen them on Amazon. <laughs> But what these do is simulate natural daylight, and you would use that as your background light in order to eliminate the the bad effects that fluorescent, incandescent, and LED lighting have when trying to match colors. Now, if your budget doesn't allow for such a purpose because these lamps are not cheap, what do you do? Well... Essentially, you, you work with what you got, you know? Yeah, I know there's fluorescent lighting over the, the pool and in and the office, and, and it's at night, so I can't go outside. I can't get to a window. I don't have a daylight lamp. What the hell do I do? Well, use what you got. Knowing that the, the, the lighting may influence how you match color, but at least you're being consistent in your inconsistency. Inconsistency. That's stuff to say consistent in your inconsistency. Uh, that's a phrase I made up a number of years ago that kind of, well, justifies having to deal with weird, poor, not the best kind of lighting conditions to match colors. So, you know, test it all in the same spot. Don't test it near the pool surface. Get into an office. You know, get away from it as best as you possibly can. So that's That's color matching in and of itself. Well, at the very bottom at the base is things like, well, test strips. Test strips have have become kind of almost essential, even though I kind of hesitate to use the word essential part of testing because it's the least accurate of any um, uh, form of testing. Remember the purpose of a test strip. I, we used to call them mom strips when I was a tailor. Um, the purpose of a test strip is to make sure that the water that I'm going to put my kid in is within acceptable ranges, okay? Because if you look closely at a test strip, you're gonna see that these the ranges, the standards on the strip or on the on the label that you're matching colors to are pretty wide, really, really wide. Like, oh my God, they're that wide, wide. So what happens if the color falls between this wide range? What's the number? You don't know the number, that's the key. It's the difference between what we call quantitative testing and qualitative testing. Quantitative testing gives you a number. Qualitative testing gives you a range. Okay, with test strips, all you get is a range. So that you know, if mom go, buys a jar of test strips, takes her kid to the local community pool, the waiting pool, wants to make sure that they know what they're doing, but the people who, who run the facility stick the strip in the water, and reads it, you know, do all those colors that develop, do they fall in an acceptable range? Okay. Quick and simple, am I where I need to be? The problem is, what if I'm not where I need to be? What if the color that develops is beyond the range where you want to be, or there's a color that develops that matches absolutely nothing on that test strip? What do you do? Well, that's where you go back up on the on the on the um, testing food pyramid, and you use another kind of test that's going to give you a number. Now, the exception to all this is that there are a number of units out there in the market that will digitally read the test strip color on the pad and assign it a value. There's a number of them out there. Taylor makes one, Lamotte has something similar there there's a number of them out there but again these these pieces of equipment are not inexpensive you know you're 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 not going to be able to stick it in your pocket and use it on your on your routes or or you know when when you're dealing with uh, everyday testing because it is kind of pricey that the, remember the purpose of a test strip quick and simple am i where i need to be okay if not then you got to use some other kind of method some other kind of testing system in order to give you a number. And it's a number that you need to figure out whether or not you need to chemically treat the water. Because if you don't have that number, and also you don't know how many gallons of water you're dealing with, you could unintentionally overdose or underdose a treatment product and not get what you want not produce the results you want. It, testing is critical for us in the industry. A uh, you know, to clean out debris as a submersible pump, as, you know, replacing a light ring, you know, all those pieces of equipment that you have in order to do the job you need to do, this is a critical part of it, okay? You can't just go to a pool and, you know, scoop out some leaves throw a gallon of acid in there and walk away. No, it doesn't work like that. If you just want to drop kick people like that. No, you need to use the right kind of equipment to get the right answers so that you can treat the water if it needs to be treated properly and correctly and make it safe for people to get in. That's the critical thing, safety. What do you use? How to use it is all part of the learning process here um, uh, when, you're, when you're testing water. In future podcasts, we're going to be talking about things like various testing techniques, what's good, what's bad, uh, how to improve on, on getting the right kind of answer. Then we're going to talk about some individual parameters in testing, like we're going to talk about pH testing, alkalinity testing, sanitizer testing, things of that nature. I'm also open for any suggestions or ideas you might want, want me to talk about. Please feel free to send these ideas and comments. Good and bad. That's okay. I take criticism. Well, sometimes. <laughs> you can send the, that uh, information to talkingpools at gmail.com. Talkingpools at gmail, gmail.com. T-A-L-K-I-N-G-P-O-O-L-S at gmail.com. And we'll take a look at them and hopefully incorporate all of your suggestions into future broadcasts. Well, that's it for now, gang. Take care. Have a good one. And it's Wayne signing off. Bye-bye. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas.